now it's got C school. It's got a lot of things going on, but it, it started as, I think I wrote somewhere. It was pretty funny, like community club and by extension, all of Comsor started with a Substack newsletter. And the first issue went to six people. And I think four of those six people were my family. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's how it started. Like, nobody gave a shit. Hey, welcome to Beginner Maps, where we showcase stories of scary career pivots so that you get the courage, path, and role models to carve out a career that you love. Today, we have the one and only Mac Redden with us. Mac is an entrepreneur, a visionary, and the originator of the community-led movement. He's the founder and CEO of Comsor and Community Club, two names that everyone in the community industry is familiar with. In fact, every guest that we've talked to has attributed getting help from the community club community when they were starting out in the community industry. So I am super excited to talk to you on this interview today, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think that the last line you just said there that you've had other guests who've attributed, you know, things to the community club, that's a, a good way for me to start the day because I'm going to smile on your face. <laughs> yeah, everyone, literally every single person that we've talked to. That's awesome. All right, uh, let's uh, start by talking about your stupid little idea called Comp Sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stupid little idea. I've definitely, I've called it that more times than, than I probably should have. And maybe I should, I should give myself more credit. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I guess it started, I don't know, three, three years ago. Um, I don't know, I feel like the last few years with the pandemic and remote work, time has no meaning anymore. So keep being like, oh yeah, that's a year ago. Oh no, wait, that's three years ago. Whoa, what, what happened? <laughs> um, but it started as a, uh, so Product Hunt had a no-code hackathon that they were doing where you had a, a weekend to basically build an MVP of a product using no-code tools. And uh, this idea for Com Sponsor and where the name came from was Community Sponsor. And I'd been working with and, and, and messing around with a few communities and had this thesis that like advertise, traditional advertising wasn't working so much. And these local like small community groups, like, you know, your Ruby user group in New York or groups like the Community Club, even though it didn't exist yet, were actually better places for companies to build partnerships. Kind of like the, actually the thesis was kind of like how podcast ads work. But like, could you do podcast ads like in a community and build with partnerships? So it was kind of like community sponsorship, which is where the... Uh, the name came from, there was no intention of it being a business. It was just an idea for a hackathon. Uh, and the, I mean, it wasn't really a product, right? Like calling it a no-code product is I think uh, insulting to those who actually build really cool things on no-code. Cause it was basically like a couple Zapier zaps and, uh, and an Airtable basically like website that was like, here are communities that are open to sponsorship. That's, that's that's all it was. An amazing idea. <laughs> like, okay. I think like I might have thought of this idea sometime in the last few months since I got into the idea of like community and thought that, oh wow, it's such a great idea. I should try it out. I had no idea that this is how Comstore started and you've already tried this out. <laughs> yeah, and it, so it started with that and it was I, I think we got like 50th place. We did not it didn't do well in the hackathon. Um but within the first week, there was like 15 communities that had signed up organically. And we're like, yeah, can you help us find sponsors and partners and companies? We're like, all right, cool. Yeah, like, let's, let's see what happens. Uh, so started actually treating it like a little bit of a side project, trying to do these connections. And we, and we actually did quite a few. Um, and I think it was something like in the first, 
And in the first three or four months, we did like $120,000 of these sponsorships and partnerships. Now, if it was $120,000 in profit for us, we were taking 10 or 15% of that. Most of it was going to communities. Um, but two things came out of that. One, we realized that very often the companies were always asking for all this data, right? They want a demographic data. How many members are there? How active is the community? What kind of members are there? It's the same things they look for when they do influencer marketing campaigns or things like that. And none of these community managers had access to that information. So we had this thesis of like, let's build some free tools. Let's build like a free community CRM that'll help the community teams or community, and these are mostly indie communities, not these weren't communities that were backed by companies, but let's build free tools that help them build a better community and get access to that data so that they can better partner with companies. So we started building what would eventually become kind of the commissar that it is today. Um, and then we also realized that this, like podcast ads, for example, as the comparison, they're very scalable, right? It's like you read a 30 second bit, it's kind of the same no matter whether you're doing podcast A or podcast B. But the problem we found was that trying to partner with communities was very difficult because each community was a little different. And the way you would kind of carry out the partnership or the sponsorship would be different. So it was very manual. It was very unscalable. And companies would come to us and they'd be like, yeah, we want to spend $50,000 getting in front of marketers. And we're like, oh, we have 10 communities of marketers. And they're like, great. But then we would have to manually kind of customize the partnership for each community. It was just, it was not worth the amount of time we were doing. And then we realized these free tools we were building, this kind of community CRM, that's actually where more value was being created. So we kind of started stop, we stopped doing the sponsorship piece and started focusing on this tooling we were building. And that's when we realized the, obviously the comm sponsor name didn't really make sense anymore. And uh, comm store came from just basically shortening. It's like the last, it's the SOR from sponsor. It was just like, oh, the domain's available. Sounds like a cool tech name. Sure, we'll smash it together. Um, I can't say it's my favorite name in the world, but it's stuck. It's unique. People <laughs> like it. So it's our yeah. name now. <laughs> and now you got it. Like you have to write it right through with it, like till the end, I guess. Stuck with it till the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay uh so this is like really cool because uh the comp sponsor was already making more than 100k in revenue in the first few months and then you pivoted to this new free tool that you had created what made you have conviction in this new free tool being the um like a business in itself it was the fact that actual businesses were interested in that tool, right? We'd been mostly working with kind of indie and, and like self-standing communities that weren't tied to businesses I mentioned. And also it always was a, it was always a struggle with them because they also had no money, right? So it was like, yeah, if we can make you a thousand dollars, you'll gladly give us 200 of it, but you're never going to pay us any money up front. There's never going to be any recurring revenue, no SaaS revenue, nothing like that. And we found that companies all of a sudden you would have a company. It actually happened. I can't remember what company it was. I can't remember, I'm trying to think, but it, some company reached out to us to do a sponsorship with us. And then they noticed this tool we were building. They're like, wait, we also have our own community. Can we have that CRM tool for our community? We're like, well, yeah, no, like, yeah, it's free. So great. And we're like, wait, we should have charged this company. I like, guess it's a company with like millions of dollars. They should have paid us for us. And it, it was one of those things where I think in hindsight, it's very obvious in the moment sometimes, like you can't see the forest for the trees and these obvious you know, indications, you don't, it takes three or four or five months of seeing the same thing again and again. And you're like, wait, We've just had six companies basically say they're more interested in our free tool than the sponsorship service we're offering. Why are we doing this thing that takes so much work and is really hard to make money with when we could just build this thing and sell the same thing to everyone and make scalable revenue? 
Mm. And uh, how many months in was this in approximately? Like when you started Com Sponsor? It was like, I think we started noticing it six or seven months in, but it took us probably to about nine months in to really make the change official and, and, and kind of kill the original Com Sponsor, which once again, I said like, in hindsight, it should have been way faster. Um, I heard someone the other day say a really interesting line that uh, people are like, oh, how'd you get lucky? How'd you find that idea? And it's, they, they compared it to buying a lottery or like to winning the lottery, right? It's like winning the lottery is really hard, but you have to buy the lottery ticket to have the chance. And it's like, you have to insert yourself into the world and build things and try things and figure out the market for that idea to happen. Where it's like in hindsight, I'm like, why didn't I have this idea nine months ago? Like, well, because you wouldn't have had the idea unless you had been doing things and figuring it out and iterating. I feel like I meet a lot of early founders and entrepreneurs who are like, they're like, I'm going to work my business plan. I got to have the perfect idea before I start building. It's like, first off, no idea is perfect, right? Like it's like no plan survives contact with the enemy. Every, like ComSort, it's like every three months, it's a different company. Like, cause we think one thing, you try, you iterate, you improve it and you have to just do it to get those learnings to be able to figure those things out. Totally love this. And can you tell me how did community club start? Yeah. So early on, we were thinking, okay, we want to sell to communities and how do we get in front of communities? We, uh, this is like right as Substack was taking off as like the thing to do. So we launched a, we launched a Substack newsletter and it was one of those, like, you know, those like kind of, they're not crappy, but like kind of like the low effort newsletters where you're just like aggregating, like here are the best blog posts and here are the coolest tweets. It's like, you're not actually adding your own content to it. It started as just one of those. It was called community weekly. And it was just, here's like some cool tweets about community that we found this week. And it grew pretty quickly to like four or 500 subscribers. And then we realized, well, why don't we like start a community to put these people in so they can actually chat with each other. So we started what was called community chat, which is just like, Hey, we have a Slack now you can join. And then, and then once comm sponsor became Comsor and we hired our first full-time community manager, we kind of realized that like this unintentional, like, just like, yeah, there's a Slack and there's a couple hundred people here. This is great. We needed a bit more of an intentional strategy. And that's when it became the community club. And you can see we built a team behind it and there's programs and it's, I think, pretty obviously pretty intentional now. It's got C-School, it's got a lot of things going on, but it, it started as, I think I wrote somewhere, it was pretty funny, like community club and by extension, all of Comsor started with a Substack newsletter. And the first issue went to six people. And I think four of those six people were my family. <laughs> like, like that's how it started like, nobody gave a shit <laughs> but then how did more people like these other 600 people discover about it were you posting it on other uh channels it was all it was all manual so the first four or five hundred subscribers and members of the community it was basically me being on linkedin being like hey you're in community do you want to join our community it's just straight up cold outreach inviting members and and then the community got to a point where we, I mean, we invite members now from time to time, but for the most part, for the last year and a half, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a critical mass and members invite members and like, we don't really promote our newsletter and it still gains 500, 600, 700 subscribers a month. It's just because once you hit a certain scale, it just, it snowballs. But that early stages, it was, it was a very intentional manual outreach process, which I actually think was, while it's a lot of work. I actually think it's a better way to start a community often than the open it up and let anybody join because it lets you create that intentional base. And I'm going a little off topic here, but I feel like there's this, there's a great saying that like in communities, existing culture almost always beats new culture in that sense that like the way a community operates when a new member joins, they're going to see one of two things, right? Like say you join a community and the first thing you see is everyone's going like, fuck this and fuck that and fuck you. And everyone's just like, that's the way they talk to each other. 
you're going to have one of two reactions. You're going to say, hey, that's how I should engage here. And you'll act the same way, which perpetuates that. Or you'll be like, oh, this community is not for me and you won't join or you won't be active. So being very intentional about who joins that community sets a foundation for the kind of community it's going to be once you do open the doors, even if it's a slow and sort of painful process in the beginning. Mm, this is very uh, insightful. I have to ask now that when you started this community, community club, was this in the strategy that members who join community club may one day buy uh, the Comsor product? Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely a, like I, so I didn't have a LinkedIn account when I started Comsor. Like I didn't have a professional network really. Um, so it was, it was kind of a way of like, how did, like, and I think I had, I don't know, I had a couple hundred Twitter followers when we started it. So like there was not, I couldn't just like, I, if I tweeted about it or post, like, it was just going out to empty, uh, an empty audience. Like I said, the first newsletter was basically my family with the subscribers to it. So it really was a way of, I think partially it was a way to, there, there's three reasons to it. And some were more intentional. Some kind of happened accidentally. One was obviously like get in front of our target audience. Another was how do we actually get in front of people to learn what, what we should be building? Because we were also right at that time we were transitioning into building a product versus a service. And it was like, what should the product be? And then also, well, how can we build a product for community managers if we're not managing a community ourselves to test the product out on? So it was almost like a, an alpha testing, beta testing ground as well. So it was, it was definitely multi, multi-purpose. But the main goal was how are we going to get community managers to know that we exist? This amuses me that uh, you're there starting Comsor and Community Club and you don't even have a LinkedIn profile. You don't know, like you're the farthest a person can be from knowing people in the industry. And today, like it's just front and center and everybody knows about it, basically. Like this journey, it feels super, um, kind of like an underdog journey. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know if it's, a, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit. It's not that community was new to me, right? I've been building community for, for six, seven, eight years in different ways and, and uh, before, before Comsor. But I think it's a good reminder that oftentimes the people who, are, who know the most and are doing a lot of the real work are not the ones you see posting on Twitter, showing up on podcasts, posting on LinkedIn, right? And it's like, I think it's very easy in this modern day and age, we associate like, who's the best expert in the space? Oh, well, it's this person with lots of Twitter followers who always posts a great tweet. But like very often, the more you talk to people and you dive into it, the real experts, they usually don't care about that. They don't have the time for that. They're, they're actually doing work. They're not posting like, you know, fortune cookie tweets that are designed to like hit a dopamine hit and get as many retweets and followers as possible. Not to say that those people aren't experts in their own way and that they know things, but it's a, it's a good reminder that there are, there's a lot of people out there that are experts in their field, even if you don't see them. Uh, like I have way more experts out there than those who actually are posting and are visible. It's so incredible to hear you say that because this is kind of a similar insight that um, we had when we started this podcast where, uh, we, we're trying to interview people and experts and talk about how they got started. And more often than not, these people have never been on podcasts. And that is what actually gave us confidence that we will be able to get them on podcasts because like, it's a new thing and we're doing it for the first time, but they haven't done it either. So uh, it'll be fine. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You just, got, you just have to do it, right? As cheesy as that sounds. Like if you, if you told me three years ago that I would be on podcasts talking at conferences, giving, pres- I would be like, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. That sounds terrible. That is not the kind of person I am. I would be so bad at that. No way ever. It's like, that's not why 
uh, I'm a founder. I didn't become a founder because I wanted to be on podcasts because I wanted Twitter followers because I wanted to be an influencer. I always like to say like, I just like building things. And this time around, I just built a thing that got a lot bigger <laughs> than anything I'd built in the past. And I think that's actually, I don't know, not to pat myself on the back, but I think that's where part of the success comes from is there's like, there's like a layer of authenticity when you build for that reason versus building with some sort of arbitrary, not that you shouldn't have some sort of end goal, but there's something beautiful about building things that just kind of happen versus things that like are, are forced into existence a little too much. Yeah, like the former method feels like it's more of a labor of love than for an ulterior model. And especially as a founder, it's like it's, being a founder is, is not easy. It's hard. It's uh, I always think it's funny. People say that being a founder, building a startup is like a roller coaster. And I always say that's a terrible analogy because a roller coaster is predictable. Yeah, it goes up and down, but you know exactly when it's going to go up and down. Building a startup or building anything new, whether it's a podcast, a newsletter, a startup, is like standing in a big room with a ping pong ball and just throwing it. And you have no idea where it's going to balance. It's going to go up, down, sideways, left, right. You can't predict it. Like That's what building it is like. And when you build something because it's a labor of love, because you enjoy it, it makes it easier to get through those things, right? I think you see very often that the founder or the creator who's in it, like the person who's going to be like, I'm going to be Instagram famous. The person who's like, I'm going to be a billionaire by starting a company. I mean, yeah, sometimes I work, you know, no, no statement is, uh, is ever fully black and white, but they don't usually make it through when times get, get difficult. And uh, anyone who's built anything ever knows that times will be difficult at some point. Hmm. This is very true. And um, this brings me to ask that, uh, so Comsor is obviously very big now. You raised, you announced a Series B round earlier this year. And this is so amazing to say. Now, I want to talk about the, like, the first time you were trying to raise money. You said that uh, you were beating payments in the New York City. You had like 50 investors turn you down. So what was that like? Who was the first investor who finally believed in you? I think it took us nine months to raise our pre-seed round, which was, I think, relative to like pre-seed rounds of the past few years was pretty small. It was a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is, uh, which is also like, like a, it's weird to say that that's not a lot of money because it, it is, but you know, you see people raise pre-seed rounds of like $5 million. You're like, wait, huh? <laughs> what? Okay. Yeah. I think it was just before community became this like huge buzzword in tech, which once it did, obviously that made it a lot easier for us to fundraise. People were like, oh, cool. Like community company. Sure. We'll throw money at you. But early on, there was a lot of trying to convince people that this community thing was going to be big, that it was going to be important, that it was going to be a thing that big companies cared about. And we just got a lot of people being like, ah, you know, you seem cool. I like the idea, but I just, I just, I don't think that's where the world's headed. It's like, but like, come on, that is where the world's headed. You have to believe me. Like, you have to. And so we went out, we got an interview at a Y Combinator and flew out there, but got turned down. Um, which actually, I'm, to me, I'm the kind of person where you're like, if you tell me I can't push this button, I'm like, fuck you, I'm going to push that button now. So in a way, it was like being told no. I was like, well, now I'm going to do it just to tell you, like, just to prove that you're wrong. <laughs> I'm going to do it now. Um, which is also, I think, a good trait for, for founders and builders to have. Because there's also, I can't remember who said it, but someone, there's a fame, pretty famous startup quote around this idea that if, uh, if no one thinks you're crazy when you're starting, they're too late, right? I like, it has to be a little bit like in this gray zone. Um, but yeah, it was like 40, 50 investor meetings being told no. And actually the first investor we met who didn't tell us our idea was stupid was Alexis Ohanian of like all people who like obviously understands community. He didn't end up investing because it was when he was at Initialized Capital and their investment committee turned us down. But like meeting with him, 
was like, he said, yes, he like, this is awesome. This is a great idea. And it gave us the energy to like go through the process and actually get investors. He did actually invest at the series A later on through his new firm, which is pretty funny, but it was uh, yeah, it was a lot of no's to get. It's just like, it's a pretty standard story. I think you hear from founders. They say it's like 30 to 40 or, or more meetings for every yes. And it's especially hard when you don't have an existing network, you don't have an existing like track record. It's not your third VC back company. It's your first one. But it definitely it sounds cheesy, but it, it definitely got easier, right? It's like getting the first $100,000 was 10 times harder than getting the second $10 million, which makes no sense, but also it kind of does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And what kept you going through all of these no's? Besides maybe like spite and <laughs> proving people are wrong, <laughs> there's just like a, a deep understanding that like, no, like no matter how much you disagree with me, like I fundamentally believe that what we're building is a thing that's worth building. I think it also helped that, so Comsor is my fourth business, but it's my first VC-backed business. So I have built and exited a bootstrap company in the past. Um, so there was always this thing in the back of my mind, I was like, if we can't raise money, I'm just, I'm going to keep building it. I'm still going to build it. It might be a little slower. It might be a little more difficult, but like, it's still going to happen, which also helped with raising. Because as we were going through and getting no's, we were still building the business. So it was like, it got easier and easier to like prove that we were doing something because, you know, when we started... Versus six months later when we did, or nine months, I, mean, I can't remember how long it was, when we did raise the round, the business had improved significantly. Uh, I think that, that's also one challenge that I feel like a lot of founders do is like, it's like you're in fundraising mode or you're in building mode. So if you're fundraising, you're not building. And if you're not building, well, then you're not proving that you're worth fundraising. So it's like, it's this weird sort of double-edged sword. But also if you're not focusing full-time on fundraising, then fundraising is really difficult. So it's always about finding this balance uh, between the two. Now, uh, like hearing you speak about the fundraising process makes me feel that you have so much conviction in the idea behind community led and the idea behind Comstock Community Club. Um, and this is a perfect place to ask the audience question that we see, which is how bullish were you when you started Comstock in the early days of Comstock about the community led vision? Not at all, but also 100%. And what I mean by that is, it, we weren't really calling it community-led yet. I think the the thoughts and the vision weren't as refined as they are today. Like I could stand up on a stage today and tell you, like, this is what I think a community-led company will look like in five years. And here's why. And here's what they're going to do. I couldn't have said that three years ago. I was completely bullish that community was going to be a critical part that companies were going to care about. And it's going to be part of their growth strategy. Like that part I knew exactly what that would look like, whether it would be called community-led or not. That part... Once again, I think it comes back to like that part was figured out by actually doing it and, and refining it. And, and even what, what I think is pretty refined right now will, will probably change again in the next six months or nine months or 12 months. It's, it's a never ending battle of iteration. But I, I was, I was 100% confident that community was going to be important. Like there was a lot of signs. You could, I think there's a lot of, back then I remember talking to investors and basically saying, it's like, okay, well, you can see that like things like Facebook and Twitter are starting to fall apart. Advertising is no longer as effective as it was, as it has been. Business has gotten super algorithmic and people are looking for a more like humanistic way to bring marketing and advertising and sales back into the process. Gen Z care more about like understanding who they're buying from and why they're buying than just like the feature checklist. The fact that it's getting easier than ever to replicate software. So you need a different competitive uh, advantage. So like all these signals that I think were already there. And then what happened essentially was the pandemic hit and suddenly online community accelerated way fast. So I actually have somewhere a set of predictions that I made at the end of, I was like beginning, middle, I don't know, sometime in 2019, 
I was like, this is what community like will look like in five years. And a lot of those were true, but it took like a year to happen because of the pandemic accelerating all these things. And that's where community became a buzzword. And suddenly it was like raising money. It was like shooting fish in a barrel versus knocking on 50 doors. And it was, it was really interesting how fast that flipped. Can you recall some of those predictions that came true like in one year? Oh man, I'll see if I can, I see if I can find them. It was the pinned tweet on my Twitter for like two years, but it's not anymore. Um, oh, it's still there. No, it is still there. Um, let's see. I'm reading them now. Uh, yeah, community will continue to be a broad term, but finally people and companies will grasp that an audience isn't the same thing as a community. That one, there's a lot of companies that still don't get that, but more and more definitely understand that. Um, community will become its own department and more organizations leading to more heads of community, chief community officers. That one hasn't happened as fast as I think some of us would like, but it's, it's happening. Um, there'll be a specialization of roles in community. Instead of community manager, we'll have community engagement, community marketing, community success, community support. That one's been true, but the biggest one has been community ops, which I didn't list as a specific one, but that's like, we've seen more specialization happening there. Um, man, there's 26 predictions here, so I'm not going to read all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, huh, I'm reading it again. I'm like, oh, these are, these are not bad. Companies will continue to acquire communities as starting points. So I, I pulled out like Stripe and Indie Hackers as an example, and there's been quite a few in the last two years, like uh, Pendo buying Mind the Product pretty recently. That's been a good one. I think there's a lot of companies that are like, oh, community is important. How can we shortcut? How can we buy an existing community? There's a lot of... I should revisit these and see how many are true, how many are not, and do a new set of predictions. Totally. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, now, I want to take a little segue here and talk about the first company, the bootstrap business that you sold. It was the chunk, and uh, it was basically a Minecraft server. Now, I'm not too familiar with that entire ecosystem, but it's basically a server where people can play multiplayer uh, Minecraft games and uh, you ran it as a business and you sold it when you were 23. Is that right? Uh, 22, 23, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Like I said, time, time is, you know, I feel like an old man. Like time has no meaning anymore. I'm like, I'm 29, I'm not that old. But. <laughs> right. So um, what are some of the lessons, community building lessons that you learned from building the chunk that you were able to apply in building community club? I think... It's actually interesting how often that shows up in unexpected ways, uh, even today. I think the main learning was really just like this idea that community was important. So what happened was, so, so yeah, the chunk was basically we used Minecraft as a game engine and created our own games and content and things on top of it, and then create a centralized network where players would come and play and compete and socialize. It was, it was kind of like, I joked that it was like what everyone is trying to say, like, this is the metaverse. I'm like, this was like, that was more metaverse like eight years ago than what people say the metaverse is now. But but sure. And, you know, I wore a million hats as a bootstrapper over the course of three and a half, four years, we grew to 14 people. So it was a relatively small business bootstrap, very slow, predictable growth. But it was actually after I sold it. And when I stepped away from the business, I realized one of all the hats I'd worn, the community building one had been the one I'd enjoyed the most. And also I realized that like, I had never once described the chunk as a community business. I'd never talked about like community as a core part of our strategy. But the act of like how we built community, how we brought players together on our content, that was actually what allowed us to be a business. We could have created content, just put it out there. But it like, you know, if we treat it like an audience versus a community, 
it would never have been the business it was. So the big learning and the more like realization was that it basically put me on the path of like thinking about community in an intentional way that over a course of a few years led to com sponsor and then and then commissar. So it was a lot of just like putting community at the forefront of my of my mind. I've said a line sometimes where it's like, I've been a community builder for 10 years, unintentionally for five years and intentionally for five years. So it was like the chunk was the unintentional phase. Right. But uh, like the audience for this community. So the chunk is an audience of gamers and um, the community club, it's all of these professionals and sometimes people who have a decade of experience building communities at companies like credit and all of that. So does it ever get overwhelming or has it ever been overwhelming for you? I don't know if overwhelming is the word I would use. I mean, there's definitely times when, uh, if I'll go back to the ping pong ball being thrown in a room analogy where the ball moves way faster than you're expecting it to and you feel like you're hanging on for, for dear life, but it's also kind of exciting and exhilarating at the same time and you wouldn't trade it for anything. It's definitely, there's a lot of differences building a community for like, you know, 14 to 20 year old gamers versus professionals and, and things like that. But there's a lot of like, the fundamentals of why people gather, why people want to connect. There's a lot of similarities, I think, and just like the human nature side of it when it comes to community building. Like a lot of the psychology is the same. There's elements of gamification. There's elements of bad community actors versus good community actors. Uh, I think starting in gaming makes professional community building a lot easier. <laughs> I've met a lot of B2B community builders who started in gaming and they're like, yeah, I'm never going back. That was the worst time of my life because you know, sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, someone posted a spam link in our Slack. And it's like, all right, like, that's not that big of a deal. Versus when you're doing, you're working with like anonymous kids and you get like, you know, you get DDoS and you get swatted and you get all the other shit that comes with the gaming world. It's like a very different type of uh, difficult. There's a lot of like extremes that you experience that uh, make everything else seem pretty tame <laughs> in comparison. Um <laughs> Not to mention that like you make way less money. It's like actually in our uh, the community club, we have like a salary database where you can look at like, you know, what people are like anonymously reporting as community managers are getting paid. And if you filter by like B2B versus gaming, it's like a five or six X difference in salary, um, which is actually pretty common in the gaming world. You have like software engineers and tech versus software engineers and gaming as well. They get paid vastly different amounts. Um, the gaming world very much runs on passion, uh, at least at the like employee level. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting learnings when it comes to, I think a lot of it I learned as well, which is like building a business and basic people management skills and leadership skills and just basics. I mean, even though it's only 14 people, you still learn a lot of what it takes to, to build and launch a company and, and going through that process. And, uh, and then actually the company I sold it to, was a, it was a mistake. I should never have sold it, but that's a separate story. Um, and through that process and experiencing the company that we sold it to, I learned a lot of kind of what not to do. As a, as a manager or as a leader or as a company structure. So there's a lot of like, I think when I when it came to starting Comsor and like really be like, this is gonna be a company now, when it kind of shifted from like side project to company, I think I had a pretty good baseline of like, this is the kind of company I want it to be versus the kind of company I don't want it to be because of those learnings that were like, once again, not, I guess you could call it like internal community building, right? It's like team building, but there's a lot of those learnings that kind of subconsciously exist and are I think present in the way Comsor is built today. Can you share, uh, like, give examples of some of those learnings that you have uh, implemented from that? I mean, when we sold the company, the, the boss at the company we sold it to was a terrible boss. So I learned a lot of things. Like, I was like, I never want to be a CEO like that guy. <laughs> like, don't do the things he did. Don't be like him. Um, 
I think there's a lot of like uh, a lot of that like intentional community building where I, like, you know, I talk about go slow before you go fast of like intentionally bringing people in. There's a lot of that, which I think I learned from the chunk around like how we actually launch new content instead of just dumping it out there and letting anyone go at it. A lot of that I think came from that. I think working in gaming, you also, as I mentioned, there's a lot of, a lot of shit happens in that world. So you learn a lot of like dealing with difficult situations, dealing with like crises and shit like that. And and all that, and that's definitely like a good uh, a good skill for anyone to have, community builder or or not, founder or not. It's just like dealing with those moments. Man, like the stories I could share. If you ask any community manager who's worked in gaming before, they have stories that would make you, yeah, you you wouldn't even believe them. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> okay, uh, now I want to ask one final question about the gaming part of things. So. There are so many founders in uh, Denmark, especially. So we're talking to the founder of Butter, Jacob, uh, a few weeks from now. And he's also a big gamer. There's uh, DHH from Basecamp, and he's a gamer. Like, what is it about uh, gaming and building companies that so many people have it in common, especially from Denmark, I guess? I, I don't know. It might just be a coincidence, to be honest. It might just be. I think there's, there's probably some element of like, if you're going to build a tech company, you're probably a pretty like internet native person. So you probably grew up playing games because that kind of like gets you into that world. I know a lot of people actually were, I know, I don't, I know a ton of tech companies that have been started by people who got their start in Minecraft. So I think Minecraft was like kind of like a, a low pressure, easy way to experiment with coding and business building and marketing. A lot of these basics that suddenly like are pretty transferable to building any kind of startup. So I think there's a lot of that where like gaming, even things like- There's marketing involved in building a Minecraft server? Sorry to interrupt. Oh yeah, absolutely. We were doing like influencer marketing. We have to figure out how do you attract like the big YouTubers to come play on your server? Because when they play, they bring their fans with them and then the player base grows. It's like, right? Because you can launch a big server, but if no one comes and plays, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because so the economics of a Minecraft server are basically, it's free to play, but people could buy like, at least on ours, people could buy a premium monthly subscription for like extra perks and things like that. So you could buy like, you could buy gold rank on the chunk, which got you like a, a yellow, a kind of golden colored name in chat. You got some extra perks, like priority queue to join games. You got like this little gold hat that shot out gold when you were in the lobby. All those little fun things that are pretty common in gaming now, but we're actually still kind of early days of cosmetics and monetization back then. So yeah, you learn a lot of things that I think are, are, are transferable skills. I know like there are two engineers at Commodore now who got their start and engineering by doing coding and learning how to build games in Minecraft and, and stuff like that. So I know, I know a ton of people, it's not just Minecraft. I've heard stories of folks who like learned how to do the basics of like economies and trading and stuff by like playing like MMOs where they would like, you know, figure out how to like buy stuff and make money and game the markets and play like the RuneScape, you know, uh, whatever grand exchange where they like, you know, figure those things out. So there's a lot of things that I think there's a lot of skills and a lot of games that you learn without even realizing that you're learning them, which is also why I think you've seen more and more companies in the last few years, like they're, they've been figuring out how do you, how do you like turn games into like intentional education material? It's like, I know educational games have been a thing for a while, but I've seen like, uh, like Twilio has a game you can play where it's actually about like learning about how the basics of Twilio work. Yeah, I know. I think gaming is a very, gaming is a medium, just like uh, a podcast, just like a blog post, just like, uh, it's just, it's the most interactive medium out there. I mean, like, even like in Minecraft, like Redstone, people do like Redstone engineering, like people have learned how to build computers in Minecraft using like the basic like circuitry building. It's like, and that skill probably applies to building like a real computer or real circuit boards or real electrical engineering. And it's kind of like, 
the, like Minecraft is basically like a giant educational trick being presented as a game. I think a lot of kids learned a lot of stuff in Minecraft and Roblox and still are to this day, and they don't even realize they're learning. That's fascinating. Okay, it's time to talk about the community-led declaration. Why is a thriving community a company's most valuable asset? Oh, so many reasons. I think for starters, I mentioned this earlier, but I think when it comes to, so we're gonna, when I talk about community in this sense, we're, we're focusing mostly on like software community specifically, not consumer brands just for the, for the sake of level setting. Um, but nowadays it's, it's easier than ever to copy software, right? It's like, you can go look at like 10 different products. And if you just like, there's so many products out there you could take, you like, you combine them next to each other. You look at a feature list and they're blind. And I bet you, you couldn't tell me which product is which, right? If you took like Notion versus Coda and just listed the features, you, you probably couldn't pick one from the other. So community becomes uh, like, a, it becomes just like, a, people say like community is the moat that nobody can copy, right? You can copy someone's product, but you can't copy the community because community is built on time and relationships that can't be replicated in, uh, in software. Um, I think that's the, that's the first thing. Community becomes like an extension of brand. Um, most communities at most companies for the last say 20 years have been uh, product communities or support communities. Where it's like you buy the product, then you join the community. But now we're seeing more and more companies build more communities of interest, like the community club, right? The community club is not the Commsource community. It's not about the Commsource product. You can join that community and you might never buy Commsource product, but it lets us make the community the first touch point. So it broadens the depth of the community. It broadens the reasons people will join. And suddenly when the community is made up of customers and non-customers and potential customers, it becomes less of a support community and it's a, it, it drives marketing awareness, it drives brand awareness, it drives sales and leads. You have a community will create content with it. Like it impacts literally every aspect of the business. We have hired people out of our community. We have sold to people in our community. We have done co-hosted events with members of our community. We've had members of our community write blogs for us. Like literally every aspect of Comsource business, you can see impact from our community. And, and ultimately, I mean, like that's, that's what every company wants, right? Like they say they want customers, they want revenue, but ultimately they're trying to build a network of people that are around them and in their ecosystem. And, and yeah, obviously as a business, your goal is to sell things and make money, but like there's all this like fuzziness that that really, that, I don't know, it's, a, it's a bit of an open-ended answer. I, I can, you can let me talk for the next two hours and you can go into detail because you could, it was a separate conversation to be had about how community is beneficial to sales, beneficial to marketing, beneficial to support, beneficial to hiring. And it's, um, it's super, super fascinating. But I think one of the mistakes, a lot of just to, you know, this is not the question you asked, but I don't think having a community is not the same as being community led. And just having a community is not enough for community to be your most valuable asset. I think most companies treat it as like they have their company and it's like, here's a community. And it's like, yeah, there's some benefits that will fall out of that just by the community existing. But it's kind of like saying, like with product-led, right? Product-led is not, you don't just, if you make your product self-serve, you're not product-led. That's just a self-serve product. It's just a sign up product. Sign up, well, that's not a word, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> it's um, being truly product-led means you have to have a self-serve product, but it also changes how you market your product, how you sell your product, how you build support for your product, how you actually build the product itself. And that's the same thing with community-led. Community-led is not just having a community it's an ethos and a thread that has to get pulled through marketing and sales and things like that. And I've seen so many companies spin up a community and the sales team just jumps in there and starts selling people. It's like, no, 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 you can't do the way you do sales in a community. You have to change the way you do sales with a community-led mindset. You have to change the way you do marketing 
with a community-led mindset. And that's where a lot of companies are struggling right now because they're like, we have this great community, but it's not driving any value for us. And it's like, okay, but if you ask your head of sales, if you ask your head of marketing, if you ask your CEO, how is community impacting your job? Very often they don't have an answer. And that's what really needs to change is like, and that's actually one of the changes we're doing at Comps right now is rather than having community be like this vertical department, we've actually taken it on its side and made it a horizontal department that lives across the organization. So rather than having just the community club team, we're exploring with how do we embed community on our sales team? How do we embed community on the product team? How do we embed community on the marketing team? And so on and so forth. And we've only been doing it for a few months now, but it's uh, it's really fascinating. We're working on a whole series of case studies and, you know, it's, I, we're going to like, you know, our goal is to actually like experiment and then teach other people and document it so other companies can copy us. It's um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff coming out about that in the next, in the next forever, I guess, is the only way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also want to double click on what you said just a moment ago that a lot of companies, what they do is when they have a community, they bring in the salesperson and they start selling to the community. And that is how you, um, justify the ROI of building a community, but that's not the community-led approach. So how should you approach selling to your community? I think it's, um, and there's a good, a good line that people hate being sold to, but they love buying things, right? And I think traditional sales processes are basically like, hey, do you want to buy? 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 And it's like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes, and, and that will work sometimes, but it's like, for the 90% of the people, it's like, it's going to piss them off. It doesn't work. It's frustrating. It might destroy your community or not, even if it's not in the community. So I think it's a lot about more like, it's about being just, I don't know, a, a fucking person, like a fucking human. It sounds so dumb, but it's like, instead of just being like, hey, I'm just going to try to sell to every single person here. It's about taking that slower approach and understanding like, when does someone want to buy? When does someone want to buy? How do you actually help them and drive value and build a relationship with them? And the goal is more like community sales is more like, I want to build a relationship with you. So when you're like, oh, you know what? I need a tool like Comsor. I need community data. I need a community sample. You're like, oh, I already know Mac. Mac's been super helpful. I'm going to reach out to Mac and like, I want to talk about it, right? And it's like, and we've seen that already in our community where like the, a, a huge percentage of our sales comes from members of our community who are like, oh, I love you guys. I, I actually need a product like this. Can we talk? And we're like, yeah, yeah, of course we can talk. Um, so it's a bit, I think a lot of sales leaders struggle with that because they're like, but you're not like, you're, not, you're like, you're waiting for them to come to you. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, the point, like if the sale is a lot easier if the buyer has already decided they want to buy things. So, and there's definitely ways that you can like nudge people along. Definitely times where it is right to reach out to someone. Like we'll have times in our community where someone will post a question in the chat and be like, hey, does anyone know a tool that could help solve this? And we're like, oh, actually like Comstore can help. So we'll reach out. But we're like, it's, it's about like being aware of like when that opportunity is versus just blindly firing to every single person who could buy. It's like, yeah, five or 10% right now is the right time. But for the other 90%, you're just pissing them off even if the time's not right right now. So it's it's about just building this more intentional awareness of when should you sell and how should you sell and how do you do it in a human approach? Like we have salespeople in our community or in our, in our team who hang out in our community. They go to our community events and not with the intention of selling. They're just members of our community, just like you. And they build relationships. And we've actually, we just had a customer who closed who has like known one of our salespeople for like a year through the community. And they reached out to us. They like filled out our demo request. And like, by the way, I only want to buy from Ben. Like, I already know Ben. I like him. Like, like how often does like a, does a, does a, a potential buyer specifically request which salesperson they want? Like that, that doesn't happen in normal B2B, but it's like, they already built a relationship to the community. And Ben was never trying to sell to this person. They're just, they're just a member of the community. 
So it's like, it's about just being a little more authentic and inhuman in your approach versus just like, hey, a good lead came in, send off the automated email. And if they don't send, if they don't respond, send the next automated email in three days. And if they don't respond, send the next one in three days. And eventually they're going to, they're going to tell you to fuck off. <laughs> right. That, that is exactly what happens. And um, that has been my experience with a lot of the communities that I've had been building. But um, it sounds to me that you have this incredible conviction in community that may not be justifiable in numbers alone. It's like you have this deep conviction within you that you know that it's going to work out. Because when you say that there are members in community club who don't even know that you have a product that can help, like that's the core business of community club, then uh, that that's just so surprising. And it would shock people and it would like, business people would say that that is an absolute red flag. You should never do that. Like what's even the point of having a community if they don't even know about the product. But it um, sounds to me like uh, you have a personal conviction in the community and the promise of community towards business. Oh, absolutely. I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that business has made in the last two decades was try to make everything automated and measurable and algorithmic and data-driven. Like that's just not the way people are. And that's actually one of the biggest struggles we have as a business because we are building a data product, right? A numbers product, an analytics product, CRM. But we're always exploring the ways to walk the line between like human relationship and number. We don't want to like boil a community down to just numbers, but we also like numbers are important. It's like, it's a very interesting balance to try to strike. But it's also like companies invest a shit ton of money in like brand or like all these other things that like they can't measure, right? Like but they still do it. And community is the same thing, but also it's partially measurable. And it, it is, yeah, I, I have huge conviction that companies that put community at the core of how they're doing business will be the companies that win over the next 10 years. And it's, you know, it's kind of a facetious sentence to say, but my favorite, favorite, favorite example is uh, Public and Robinhood. So they're both like, uh, you know, uh, investing apps, you can buy and trade stocks and things like that. They both started around similar times. Robinhood raised way more money, got way bigger, way quickly, did not approach community-led. And, and in the short term, it's like, that's the thing, community takes time, right? So sometimes you're like, hey, see, Robinhood got bigger, they're better, like they did it better. But look where they are now. Which one is a healthier business? Which one's doing better? Which one would you bet on still being here in 10 years? It's absolutely public and community is core to their strategy and has been from day one. And that's the thing that I think a lot of businesses struggle with is that community takes time. I get founders all the time who are like, okay, if I hire three community managers instead of two, will it go faster? Like, it's like, okay, I appreciate the excitement, but like, no, <laughs> to some extent, no. Like there's like a, there's, a, there's a certain speed at which community building happens, that human connection happens. It does take time. You're not, if you start a community today, you're not going to be able to put measurable value or, or measure ROI in three months. That's just unrealistic. doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Uh, I mean, it took us like a year and a half with the community club before I could even point to proof that it was working. But it's, uh, I don't know, if you want to build a business that's going to last three years and maybe burn out fast and maybe exit, maybe make you some money. Yeah, maybe you don't have to invest in community. If you want to build a company that's going to be here in 10 years, you should probably invest in community. Right. And um, so what do you point to when people ask you, like, what's the value that community club brings to the Comsor company? Like if an investor asks you, then... What's, how do you uh, justify that? Well, like if you were to ask me, I'd say like, why are you here talking to me right now? It's because of the community club, right? That's why you and I are having this conversation. That's the value, 
right? Whether it's a sales conversation, a podcast, a marketing conversation, a hiring conversation, businesses are built on relationships. It's kind of like, think about the old school sales, right? 20 years ago, sales happened on the golf course. Why did sales happen on the golf course and not the business room? It's not because people like golf. It's because it lets you build a relationship. Community is just a sort of modern, internet native, scalable way to build the same relationships that you would have expected to have built on, you know, at the in-person event, on the golf course, over a meal. And that's like, cold emails don't close deals. People close deals. And community is how you scale people. Right. Love this. I also want to talk about this. So I was just browsing through and scouting through your Twitter profile and just stuck in you and went to the bottom of that. And I saw that you had uh, retweeted this tweet from Naval Ravikant, where he basically says that community builders might be the, uh, the only people who are higher leverage than programmers or designers. So um, this has always felt very like confusing to me, that what can a solo community builder do? Like a solo programmer, they can build an entire product, but what can a solo community builder do in a day where every one seems to rely on community teams and, you know, these big budgets. I mean, just like you say, you know, a solo programmer can build a, to- a whole product. A solo community manager can build a whole community, right? And it's, it, it's not going to happen overnight, just like building a product isn't going to happen overnight. But I think it's interesting. It's like, I always think about, so I was super big on like, you know, the bootstrapping indie hackers world. You know, I'm still a huge fan of it, but obviously like Contour is like not quite in that world anymore. And it's always interesting, like a lot of indie hackers and bootstrappers tend to be programmers, right? And they always are like, it's so easy to build a product. But it's like building a good product is like having a good idea nowadays, right? It's, it's easier than ever to build a decent product. But if you don't have good marketing, good sales, good, like, good networks, it doesn't matter, right? It's like distribution is everything. And community building is the best way that a single person can build good distribution. And that's, that's the ultimate, that's what makes or breaks business, right? Is go to market strategy and distribution and marketing. Like it's for every, for every company that's successful, there's probably 10 others that have built just as good of a product, but like, you've never heard of it. And I, I was actually talking to a founder yesterday who doesn't have, like they're a two or 300 person company. Like they're pretty big. They've raised a shit ton of money. They've got a lot of big customers. And we weren't even talking about community building. We were just kind of like two founders having a conversation about challenges and things like that. And I was like, what's the biggest challenge you're facing? And he goes, just brand awareness, awareness that we exist. And we built a good product. We just need more people to know we exist. And then the whole conversation just turned into like building communities. Like, holy shit, like we should build communities, community awareness. And like, and they're going to launch a community. Now. At least I'm pretty sure based on our conversation yesterday, they're going to launch a community now. Community has compounding effects. Like let's say you're a developer, right? You're writing a product. If you get sick tomorrow and you can't code for a week, nothing's going to happen, right? It's just the code will stop being written. It's not going to write itself. If you've built a community, like the community club, we don't really invite people to communicate right now, right? People drive their own engagement. They invite more people. It's a thing that once you get it going, it compounds on itself in a way that nothing else, whether it's advertising, outbound, like outbound sales, just like the developer, if the outbound salesperson stops sending cold email, the outbound process is going to stop working. But for us, like, so we actually, when we try to sell to someone now, we actually, like our first outbound message, if we are doing outbound, is to invite them to our community. Because it's like, once they're in the community, it's like you can continue building that relationship. It compounds on itself. And maybe like, maybe I'll invite you to the community. Maybe you will never be a Comsor customer, but you might invite someone who will be a Comsor customer, or you might engage with someone who, because they have that engagement with you, they have a good experience in the community. And because they have a good experience, they associate that experience with Comsor because we're facilitating it. And then they buy from us one day. 
community is way harder to get started with than sales or advertising. And it's like, it's a much longer path to showing ROI. But once you get that community flywheel going, it builds on itself in a way that no other function or no other skill at a company can do. I love this. And I think this is very evident with the community club as you've been trying to do, because uh, I am looking at community club Slack right now. and It has just 4,389 members which is like very tiny compared to what people have in terms of audience. Like they have millions of people re reading their blogs. They have hundreds of thousands of people in their newsletters and their email lists. And that is what they consider their, like maybe their biggest assets. But here you are with community club, shy of 5,000 members. And it's, uh, it has like a much, like much more bigger asymmetric impact than any of the other marketing tools could ever have. And quality over quantity, right? You could have a million Twitter followers, but if they're not engaging with you, who gives a shit? Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> All right, Mac. So I have a ton of questions to ask. Like I have a whole list, but I'll respect your time. And I, just, if you, let's yeah. go. One, one last question. What's the number one question you have yeah. asked? <laughs> okay. Uh, so which is the community apart from the ones related to Comstrand Community Club? that you enjoy being the most in and why? Oh, that's a good question. The ones I enjoy the most. So enjoy the most, not necessarily get the most value out. Yeah, I mean like the value out of, yeah. Because it's basically- I mean, So I'm gonna, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go maybe a different direction than you would have expected me to. Um, I am part of a, like a small community of folks that play badminton once a week here in Copenhagen. I think it's a, it's a good example actually. The reason I bring it up is that Obviously, for the per, like for the person comments where we often talk about community from a business perspective, but like sales is really just a thing that applies to business. But that's something that community is a thing that shows up in a lot of ways outside of business. And you know, community is is the glue that makes humans humans. As as cheesy and dumb as that might sound, we are like you know we are social creatures, as people say. We 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 you know the reason we live together versus all living out. And there's exceptions, but. Um, and this small group that I play batting with, it's, uh, you know, not only is it great, it's like building a friend group, but it, it gives me an excuse to like, I don't know, I'm the kind of founder who like, if you let me, if I didn't notice, I would sit here for seven days straight and just work and be like, oh shit, a week went by, like what the hell happened? So it creates this like interesting, you know, it's a, it's a, way, a reason to get away from the screen. It's a reason to go run around. It's a reason to have fun. And I think it's a good, it's a good reminder to a lot of folks that not every community, not everything you do has to be for the purpose of like, what's the ROI? What's the measurement? And this is actually I think, true for business communities too. Like there are these like soft and measurable reasons why people get together, why communities happen. And um, I actually think one of the best ways for any, you know, and I think most community managers I meet, I think do this, but one of the best ways for anyone who wants to learn about community management to learn about what makes a community tick is to go join non-business communities. Go join your local cooking community, your local knitting community, your local badminton community and you'll actually like you'll notice a lot of like once again the psychological reasons of how people gather and things there's a lot of things that you will realize that that are actually applicable to the job that you want to do in the business sense so i don't know maybe not the answer you were expecting but it's the answer i've got for you <laughs> yeah it's even better than what i was expecting so that has been amazing mac uh, i think this conversation will be super valuable to founders and community builders maybe even community professionals who are starting out with building the community, who are trying to justify the impact of community on their businesses. And yeah, I think it has been a great chat, Mac. Thank you so much for making the time. It's been wonderful. Thank you for having me.